Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybal Inc. I'm Pete Wright, and I'm here with Howard Tybal. <laughs> hey, Pete. I love huh? that. I love your enthusiasm I'm today. In- I'm that? incredibly enthusiastic this week. I know, because you know what? Can I guess what you're going to say? Do it. I have one of my people here. Yeah. I do. Right? I, this is uh, one of this is a legacy people right here. Right. Uh, right. We're we're going to be talking about uh, well, we're going to be talking about a bit of a non traditional approach uh, yes. uh, to education this week. I'm very excited. Uh, note before we dig in, head over to tybalink.com, learn more about the show, subscribe for free, blue button right there on the website. We will keep you updated if you give us your email address. We'll keep you updated as we post new shows. Okay, Burke Smith is the CEO and founder of Straighter Line, an education company that works to solve a major hurdle among many hurdles for many students, cost. They do this by offering accredited courses online for a monthly fee with credits that are guaranteed to transfer within their network of transfer colleges. Back in 2012, Andrew Rosen was speaking at a conference and I was moderating a conversation. He just had uh, had a book come out. And it was with the business officers of uh, the Eastern Association. So all the Eastern Association, CFOs, COOs, whatever you want to designate them as. And he was telling the story about what Kaplan's doing. He made a really interesting statement. He said, listen, you don't have to worry about me. You have to worry about or think about all the other independent uh, creative entrepreneurial businesses that are going to start to pop up to address some of the challenges facing higher education that the traditional model is not addressing. And I can tell you that the audience was very interested in this. I think that in some sense, if I was to be really candid, uh, many of them were looking for reasons to dismiss what he was doing, and others were really trying to understand it to see what they do about it. So, you know, knowing that our audience, in probably 90% of them, come from the more quote unquote traditional world, I'd love you to start off by just telling the story about why they should care about this. Sure. Well, first, thank you for having me and uh, and the opportunity to to speak. Um, I think maybe the best way is to talk quickly about what we do to set context and then to talk about why we do it, how we work with colleges, and then what the implications are going forward. Um, and if, if in that process, Pete or Howard, you all want to interrupt and ask questions, you know, feel, feel free. I certainly don't want to be on my soapbox. Um, but what Straighter Line does is we offer online general education courses, just general education. We have about 60 of them. Uh, we have no aspirations to offer degrees, <clears throat> just these courses. Uh, we're not a college, uh, so we're not actually accredited. However, uh, we have formal articulation agreements with now about 100 colleges. We can guarantee credit transfer from us to them. So students enroll with us. They do not use financial aid. They pay out of pocket. Uh, they start with a free trial. Then if they uh, like the experience, then they pay on a subscription basis, $99 per month. And then there are per course fees of about $49 each. I am going to interrupt, Eric, because I think that there's something really interesting about what you just said. So you said you already have a whole series of colleges that you, where you have articulation agreements where they take your courses and they will accept those courses as part of a degree granting program. Is that right? Correct. Yep. So, so when I think about the institutions that you're partnering with, uh, are they also in the nonprofit 
uh, sort of more traditional, or are they also operating in? They've got a very uh, sort of robust, or they're trying to build a online kind of environment, and you become, in many ways, a partner with them in in this non-traditional approach. You know, when I say non-traditional, I'm talking about the you know the alternative to the residential campus, the traditional community colleges, the large research institutions, whatever we whatever we deem as the traditional institution. Uh, who are those schools who are accepting your courses for their degree granting programs? So the hundred colleges we currently have, and uh, we are, it really crosses the spectrum. So they're public, private, uh, for-profit, two-year, four-year, um, really, it, it doesn't really matter the type. What the defining feature is, is that most of them, in fact, probably all of them, uh, aspire to serve adult and non-traditional students, which, as we know, is actually the majority of students these days are not traditional. It's not that 18 to 22-year-old going to have a fabulous residential experience. You know, they are going in, swirling in and out of colleges. They're taking some online, some face-to-face. -face. They're bringing credits from multiple sources. That's the, the population that we serve, um, mostly because that's how we've had to build the business to get traction in higher ed, yes. not because these credits don't necessarily fulfill more traditionally aged students. It's just that higher ed has not been, a, or the dynamics have not been present to, to build that kind of presence. You know, and, and what's fascinating for me about this is this, you know, where, where many, many leaders who work in, quote unquote, the traditional environment recognize that there's a need to take transfers and that there's kids that come back to school after they become adults, maybe they're 10 years out. But the majority of their model is around that transition period uh, out of high school. We forget to realize, as you just said, the majority of individuals who are in the college and its environment are going to be more and more over time these adult and non-traditional students, and that's only going to grow. And this is an area where I can tell you most of the residential campus institutions uh, are not really paying attention to how they're going to serve them. And, and I think this is where you're filling a filling a gap. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, and the logic is, um, and, you know, it's at some level kind of harsh logic, but true, is that we, one of the big questions we had to answer as a, as a business was why would colleges work with us? If we are offering accounting 101 courses or psych 101 courses at prices that are 10 times less than what a college is offering themselves. But well, there's two questions. Why are we so cheap, which is often kind of a veiled reference to there must be a quality problem. Right, and then, right, and, right, and, right. And, then, and then second is why would they work with us? And the first answer is that, you know, almost all colleges price their online courses the same or higher than face-to-face, -face, which is nuts because the cost of delivery is far, far less. Can I tell so you that I just was in a conversation with the school where that question came up by one of the deans and the answer from the person developing their online curriculum is we're charging the same amount for the online programs. And But I can tell you from that perspective, from their perspective, this is how they're trying to offset the fact that they can't raise tuition and they can't reduce their workforce. Uh, they're dealing with rising healthcare costs. So they're looking at these online programs as an opportunity to offset those gaps. And you're, this is another example of, you know, it's the dilemma you have, which is 
they're offering them at a price that is comparable to what they would have for the traditional seated classes. However, because they have the brand, the perception is the quality must be high. Well, you're probably dealing with the fact that people look at your pricing and in a, they're incorrectly concluding the quality is less because you don't have that brand. Yeah, that's uh, that's certainly true at the highest level. Although that's a short-term um, problem, and it's already changing. The um, you know I think most people realize at uh, at the core that you can't charge ultimately the same or higher for online as face-to-face. There's just not as much cost embedded in it. Um, the uh, and that you're seeing that in sort of general statistics where online enrollments at accredited colleges are flat. Uh, enrollments are say learning in non-accredited platforms, whether that's straighter line or MOOCs or elsewhere exploding. So, you know, people are essentially starting and where they are increasing in higher ed is at the community college level and the high priced online enrollments are the ones that are plummeting. So students are starting to make price conscious decisions uh, in online education. And, uh, and, and that's only going to grow. Um, so, you know, again, it's, as more folks like us are out there as our uh, as both students take us as well uh, take our courses as well as more colleges accept it and now that the department of education is starting to create financial aid or thinking about creating financial aid pathways to providers like us that not only creates a financing tool but creates internal val- or uh, external validation for what we're doing so this idea that colleges can sort of drop their cost of delivery but maintain their profit margins uh, over time is just, I, I think that's a, that's a bad strategy for a college to pursue. Well, it's a bit of a uh, legacy yeah. argument, too. I mean, the, the argument that, that they, that the at least the academic side of the house, you know, sits on is, well, the, the diploma says XYZ University. It doesn't say XYZ University online, so the diploma is the value. That's right, PP. You know what? That, that was the question that was asked, Burke, was uh, when when your collection of courses gets represented uh, you know behind your diploma does it show which one of your courses are online versus classroom and the answer is no so in some ways there's again another justification that they can charge the same amount because what they're buying still in the the value proposition that many schools most schools are still thinking is this diploma from this institution. Now, believe me, we work with lots of institutions. There are the small liberal arts charging over 50 grand at this point a year, at least uh, sticker price. And they are having to look really critically at this question of cost while the bigger players, they're trying to figure out how to deal with these transfer issues and trying to bring online in. So, well, that, that then becomes the, the question then, right? Howard, is that, you know, these institutions are coming, are trying to find a way to make each student more more profitable as they move to online opportunities. And yet here we have, uh, you know, Burke, you are offering an opportunity for each student for to uh, become, uh, to find the value in each student by getting rid of essentially the overhead that these more profitable students at traditional ed are, are covering, right? I mean, is, is that your model? Or can you talk a little bit more about that? So yeah, so it's kind of three, um, or, well, uh, three big questions, I guess, that we had to answer. One is about the, you know, 
about price, and it's really we're just pricing closer to the cost of delivery, whereas colleges you know, try and price as if they were face-to-face -face courses. So there's really no difference in our courses. We're just pricing more affordably. But the second is, sort of to your question, why would a college work with us? And on the one hand, you know, they're worried that you know, someone will take our accounting 101 course at, you know, for a tenth the price of theirs, and they don't drive, derive the revenue for that course. On the other hand, colleges spend you know, anywhere from one to five to sometimes even higher $1,000 to attract new students to their college. Right. And um, the, uh, so the students that come to us need a place to go, and the place to go becomes the colleges that make it easy to transfer their credit. And then colleges are competing with each other for students, so over time, more and more colleges work with us because they all want to be on the same playing field as everyone else who's working with us. So there are some network effects that, uh, uh, that start to get created once you get a critical mass. And the and so idea, then, is that your students, the students that come out of your program end up being of greater value to, you know, to the transferring institution. Well, there's two things. One is they get a free channel to new students. So, you know, we don't sell leads at all, ever. We do not take any money from colleges, which is not the case for many of the marketing channels the colleges pursue now. So it's absolutely free to work with us. Uh, and then second, the students that do go to that one of our partner colleges are more likely to persist to a degree than those that just start fresh. And we have data from Western Governors University, who we work closely with. Yes. Uh, that, that, that proves that. So, and, and, and that's also proven by sort of multiple um, more general studies. So transfer students persist more than non-transfer students. Students that come with prior learning assistance persist more than those that don't. Students that come with straight line credit are going to persist more than those that don't. So basically students that have proven themselves are more likely to be successful, which so, should So how would you play out the, so the, the longer term implications of you and other providers being more successful at this relative to the cost structure problem that the traditional colleges have, and, and in their cases, trying to figure out how to do a better job of attracting students is part of your strategy. You know, I'm, I saw Sal Khan speak, and it was the same audience. It was, it was the uh, cabinet members who were the finance folks, and the question that was asked of him was uh, – uh, what's your what's your long-term strategy? And he, his long-term strategy was very explicit about this: was not to be the alternative to traditional education, but to find a way to have more traditional education utilize his programs and services and approach and data analytics to do a better job of ex of serving their students and students of the future. So. In terms of your longer-term strategy, is it about creating a different model, or is it about ultimately integrating your into the existing model? Uh, we're much more the latter. I mean, we work closely with colleges. You know, so you know, on the one hand, you mentioned there is kind of a, a fear that students great to our courses and undermine business models or profit margins of colleges. On the other hand, we have become a very good source of students for many colleges. So we'll have about 20,000 students enroll with us this year and growing rapidly. And on top of that, we now have some colleges that are using us as a referral destination for students that they can't enroll or lose engagement with. So uh, a student you know, a, a student that was interested that didn't apply, a student that applied but didn't uh, enroll, a student that enrolled but didn't complete, at some point the college has lost engagement with that student and we can be a place where they say, hey, 
go to Straight Alliance, take a few courses, prove yourself, and come back. And so for the student, that's a low cost, low risk to essentially test themselves and see if they're ready to go back without having to commit themselves to debt or the financial obligation of a college. And for the college, it's a way to optimize their marketing stream and kind of get a second crack at these students who they lost engagement with. And uh, and for larger implementations and those that colleges that kind of take this uh, on as a serious strategy, we do significant co-branding, co-marketing, and uh, and data sharing. We try and uh, um, optimize that stream of referrals to us and back to the college. So we absolutely see ourselves as part of the degree framework. Um, it's uh, it's just that that um, online courses ultimately should be much much more affordable, um, just because of their cost of delivery, uh, which actually solves a lot of problems that we've talked about in higher ed. Uh, it talks it solves the cost problem uh, for students for those who want to take these sorts of courses. It solves the risk problem so that students can ease into college work without having to take on you know significant debt before they start, and actually ends up helping to solve the performance problem because those students that do move beyond this kind of early stage, low risk entry path, um, then they're much more likely to persist. So you see success rates go up over time. Uh, However, it it does kind of take out some of the overall revenue that flows into higher education. So, so what are you discovering are the, some of the barriers uh, to entry in partnering with these traditional education leaders that from a distance look at you as my guess at the highest level don't entirely understand how it's going to help them. Uh, And also on some level, look at what you're doing as potentially taking it away from a model that they really don't have a plan to to execute around an alternative. So how do you engage uh, to get interest? Because it seems to me, you know, from the Forbes article, uh, you, know, you know, when I look online, uh, and, and I think with the story that's being told more and more about competency-based education, credentialing, badges, there's a recognition that higher ed is going to continue to get more and more segmented in, in terms of serving the students. And uh, my experience, though, is that higher ed leaders are insulated from what you're trying to do and on some level, at the very basics, need to be educated so that they see you potentially as an ally versus a threat. Yeah. Um, so I guess the first is... Um We've worked really hard over the past, so a little background, Straightline started in 2008 as a division of my first company, which was an online tutoring company called Smart Thinking, which is now owned by Pearson and is used by lots and lots of colleges. Um, became our own company in 2010, but and from 2008 to 2012, we were very controversial. I mean, if you think this, where we are now is um, kind of... Uh, Kind of new and alternative. 2008 was was really radical, <laughs> and um, the uh, uh, but we've worked really hard to basically amass what we call good housekeeping seals of approval for our courses. So all the courses are AC credit recommended. They've been through the Distance Education Accrediting Commission's uh, AQC project. We've had College Board look at them for AP worthiness. We have our articulation agreements. We're very upfront about the courses, very transparent with them. I speak at lots and lots of conferences. So we've gone. It's really all driven to create legitimacy 
um, for an equi and, and legitimacy in the eyes of higher education for our courses, which they are. In fact, in many cases, they're better than a lot of the online courses that individual colleges are offering for general education. So we've done a lot of that work, and that has started to pay off. It started to pay off because the market has started to move in this direction where more and more students are taking our courses, more and more in the marketplace have given us additional legitimacy. So yeah. the, the, the MOOC movement, sort of the MOOC moment in 2012, suddenly we weren't the only voice in the wilderness. Now there were four or five others, and it became clear that this wasn't going to go away. Uh, and the next big step that's happened recently is the Department of Education announcing the experimental um, site program called EQUIP, which um, is likely to create financial aid pathways to providers like us in concert yeah. with uh, colleges as well as uh, other ways of thinking about quality, QAEs as they're calling them, quality assurance entities. Uh, so this is gaining popularity students, gaining legitimacy, uh, and then also gaining sort of regulatory approval as well as financial aid dollars. So you can see the trend growing. And and what we do to colleges, we're very frank. I mean, we, um, and I'll We'll talk to a college and say, I understand your fear um, that uh, students will take these courses and not take yours. And that's understandable. But we really haven't seen it yet. It has not happened that any of the colleges we've worked with have seen a mass migration of students that they're already enrolling to us. Um, I wouldn't say it won't happen ever, but it certainly hasn't happened yet. Second, we want to work with you. And we believe in the college degree. We are structured as a pathway into the degree and to complete the degree. I don't think the degree is going away. Uh, a lot of rhetoric around it right now about the ROI of the degree and how it'll be replaced by badges. Badges are going to be out there, but at least for the next five yeah. to ten yeah. years, I would think they're yeah. going to be add-ons. They're not. They're going to complement. Exactly. The they're going to they, they, they answer just-in-time needs rather than yeah. overall. Yeah, so we believe in the degree. We're here to help colleges. I understand the dilemma, but you can kind of pretend it's going to go away and not engage with these new providers like us. Um, or you can say, hey, this is going to come. How do we make the best of it and kind of ease into it? And so for us, you know, the first step is an articulation agreement. It's free. It just says, yes, straight line courses transfer to us. And here's how. And that's all it is. Uh, second, if a college wants to go further, we have what we call our scholarship program where um, willing colleges will offer additional tuition discounts to students that complete four or more of our courses. And the reason they do that is then we can list them as a scholarship partner. They get slightly better kind of a marketing category on our site. And um, and then students get additional discounts and colleges get students that are better than even the ones who are coming to us directly. So, so tell me, uh, when you think about your next big thing, you know, it's like in many cases, I, I can imagine you're just you're doing everything you can to keep up with uh, the growing demand and also making sure that the pitch is being told in a consistent way. I'm sure as you're as you're growing and you have more colleges, it's not just you telling the story. But how would you characterize for our listeners uh, your view of the, the next big thing that's going to play out? in this world because you're you're not the only player in this and I'm sure you keep tabs on how some of your competitors are are dealing with this uh, what do you see as the next phase in this whole introduction of the for-profit uh, institution that is both partnering but also working independently uh, th that uh, those who are working in more traditional colleges should be aware of um, so a couple ways to look at that. I mean, uh, I'll go to two points. Um, one is that I believe the last 16 years of online growth in higher ed has been driven by convenience, that students have chosen to take online courses. doesn't really matter the price, but because the experience was so much more convenient 
than going and sitting in a classroom. And, uh, and that's been great as higher ed has had, as accredited higher ed has had really little competition. So yes, there's competition among colleges, but between colleges and other business models, there hasn't really been much competition because accreditation and the massive taxpayer subsidies that are tied to it, uh, and by my estimate, that's probably a couple hundred billion dollars a year when you add up all the different subsidy flows, which are um, many, um, have been very difficult for new providers to get in. That's changing. Um, so now, in addition to convenience, students are looking at price. And, um, and that's the biggest change in the space is now not only are colleges competing with each other, but they're also competing with non-colleges. And it could be providers like us, and you know it's sort of a co-opetition sometimes, um, but it could also be uh, uh, providers where students are taking their certificates they otherwise would have enrolled in a college. So, you know, a, a MOOC certificate uh, that maybe, you know, would have been revenue that might have flowed into a certificate program at a college is now going to flow to a cheaper, shorter term, more convenient program online. Um, so I think that's the, that's the big kind of financial challenge in terms, or, or rather economic challenge going forward, is that some of these profit streams that had been driven uh, by the margins derived from online learning, whether colleges know it or not, they're not real good at understanding the unit economics for a, uh, an online course versus a face-to-face -face course, um, the, those are going to start to dry up. And then second, uh, you're also starting to get regula regulator approval uh, and regulator, uh, in many cases, just um, acknowledgement and endorsement of these new providers, which will, again, change the dynamic of the space. It's yeah, no longer... That's going to accelerate the whole conversation. Exactly. You can no longer say, oh, we're accredited, and therefore these are of low quality, because now they are de facto accredited also, yeah. and those that weren't are being proved to be of pretty high quality also. You know, it's interesting, Pete, because so much of the dialogue and conversation that I find and my team finds itself in is helping with strategic conversations at a, at a senior level. And in many cases, what we fall into is a conversation about looking at the last strategic plan, uh, thinking about our mission, trying to figure out how we're going to stay consistent with that, but also address the cost and revenue problem. And while they're having these, in many cases, very insulated conversation, there's all this other uh, sort of growing uh, alternatives that I can tell you, even when you said, Burke, you know, for the last 16 years, online education, I would say most people have had their head in the sand that this has been an industry of online that has been around even that long. It's been longer than that, but most institutions are not recognizing that this is this is potentially getting to a tipping point where – they need to find out how they're not going to panic, but how they're going to say, how do we engage in this conversation, either to develop it ourselves or find ways to partner with what you're doing. I think part of it, Burke, to be perfectly frank, is trust. I think that there's, yep. a, there's a fundamental mistrust that a for-profit education model is – uh, not going to ultimately leave the traditional model or the intention is to leave it in the stand. It's all about the uh, – it's, it's not about uh, the net, you know, as a mission-based institution is thinking, but about profit. 
and yep. driving it around profit. And because of that, because of that mistrust, this is why there is, you know, head of the stand or not even want to look at this. And, and I think the, your biggest challenge is how do you over time continue to build trust that you are really looking to uh, have all ships win in this. And by the way, all ships are not going to win in this. There's no question that over time, the amount of degrading institutions, they cannot all survive. I think we all know that, and that's why there's a greater level of urgency. But the big shift has to happen if, if you're going to you know, be the kind of player that, that more and more traditional schools are, are looking to and, um, and working with, is that they trust you, that, that you are really uh, sort of have the same mission they have, but you're doing it in a different way. Yeah, and I, I think um, so to be to sort of parse the for-profit versus non-profit debate a little more um, uh, intensely, you know, the uh, colleges, one, they have their own business models and whether they know it or not, you know, are seeking profits. You know, they may distribute them differently uh, instead of going to shareholders. It's different words, but it is, it is about profit yeah. and loss. This was, this was John Sperling's great quote, right? That all, all that, colleges are, are for profit, whether they like it or not. Just most of them are run in the red. Yes, that, 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 that's right. <laughs> yeah. And so, so that, that's first. Um, and then second, colleges are very comfortable working with for profits. I mean, all the um, outsourced service providers, um, right. all the services they bring in, they do it all the time. Uh, and have no qualms with that. And so in many cases, the for-profit debate is really being carved around around for-profit branded colleges as opposed to for-profit vendors or others. Correct. And uh, and so so just to be clear, that's where the default line has fallen. And I even there, yes, there are some colleges that have had um, sort of scandalous marketing tactics, but there are some nonprofits who've done the same. Exactly. And and further, many of the most successful nonprofit online programs have you know have adopted, copied almost whole cloth, the for-profit marketing. Uh, practices, you know, not so much the extremes, but certainly the same business models. So there's a lot of gray area between for-profit and non-profit in the space, and I think over time that's that's diminishing. So I'm not so so worried about that. Yeah, but, but you know, you just... the point about trust make, is is yeah. absolutely true. Is that yeah. you know we have to have people trust that our courses are of high quality, which is why we've done all these good housekeeping seals of approval. You know, yeah. we, we work very closely with colleges. We're very transparent. I'll tell them exactly. You know, here's what's coming. You can choose to be part of it or not, you know, I get it. I'm not going to go and fight, you know, beat your faculty if they don't want to be part of this. But to your point earlier about uh, strategic plans, I won't name colleges, but I was at a meeting with a um, large flagship institution that has uh, a very strong brand. It's very proud of itself. Uh, and they went through their strategic goals and they said, we want to lower the cost. We want to increase access. Uh, we want to improve student success uh, for and, and grow enrollments by about 50% over the next four or five years. And uh, and so they had listed all these goals. And I said, well, we kind of hit all of those and here we are to help. And they're like, well, well our faculty wouldn't like that. And See, so that's exactly where I was going to go with this is that <laughs> – you know, everything you were saying before about the representation of a nonprofit, that we use different language in nonprofit to represent uh, how we're going to break even. And now colleges and universities are attempting to use that to, to say we, we're not a corporation, but we do need to live uh, above this above this line. Your dilemma is not with, I think, so much the administration, but the 
the leaders really enrolling the academic side of the house into seeing this as a valid way to move through this. And I can tell you that in our work, there's enough challenge just even to get uh, an institution to work at understanding their their financial model as it relates to their academics. So how many kids do we have? How many students do we have enrolled in X programs? And to just understand that, forget about bringing it in uh, an, an alternative model. So to me, as I listen to you tell the story, I think many leaders uh, who are paying attention to how do we want to grow through this would say, we should look at this. Their dilemma is, how do we engage our faculty? How do we engage the senior academic leadership in this conversation uh, to sort of parse out this, this partnership conversation? That, that is always the rub. Yeah, it, it, it's true. And I, there are no easy answers except it takes time, you know, and so and that's what we have done. So we have spent, you know, eight years as a company, you know, six years on our own, having those conversations to get to the point where we have, you know, 100 colleges or just about signed our, our 98th the other day, uh, but 100 colleges with whom we have formal articulation agreements, kind of a low risk way to start. And then we've got others we do much more integrated things with, but it's all free and it's all at the discretion of the college. And um, uh, and we'll you know, be very transparent about the courses and they can make choices about what they will accept and what they won't accept. All we ask is that they be clear in advance so we yep. don't end up with students who kind of think they're getting credit when they're not. What I love behind the, the content of the conversation here is I just have a, a sense of that you have not just a high level of energy, but that your level of optimism for uh, how you're approaching this work. You seem to be uh, in a good place in terms of what you're building. Uh, I, I, I'm very happy where we are. So first, I love colleges. I mean, I love the people in colleges. Uh, they are, it's unbelievable how uh, uh, dedicated they are and how motivated they are. And it, it's, it's, a fun, it's a fun market to be in. The, 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 the structure of higher education, finance, pricing, how it works is really broken. And, uh, and that's why we've chosen to start outside of higher ed. But we do have some solutions that can help. And, um, and that's fun. And, uh, and being able to kind of do it every day, and we're making slow progress with our partner colleges, though fast progress with our enrollments, is, uh, it's very exciting. So um, yeah, we're, we're happy about where, uh, where the world's going. This is a fantastic conversation, Burke. Thank you so much. I mean, what I love so much about it, we just last week talked about the giant leaking sieve that exists between two-year colleges and four-year colleges and, and uh, you know, this idea of creating stronger candidates for degrees. And, and this, this is one potential horizon. It shows that there is actually really great innovation going on uh, in, in this space to, to help solve this problem. So we surely appreciate you uh, joining us today to share your insights. And where would you point people uh, to... Uh, to learn more about uh, about what you're doing? Well, certainly go to our website, uh, www.straighterline.com, uh, or email me directly, uh, bsmith at straighterline.com. And um, uh, happy to tell you more about what we do. Uh, we have colleges with whom we work all over the country. Um, again, whether two-year, four-year, public, private, uh, adult serving, non-adult serving, really all the all the above, and uh, and happy to have a conversation and you know and and let the college decide if it's something they want to participate with or not. This is fantastic, Burke. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, oh, thanks well, thank for being on the show. Me. Really, really fantastic presentation and uh, and conversation. I mean, I know that people listening to this are gonna are gonna want to dig further into this conversation and be thinking about this. So this was really helpful. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you for having me anytime. Thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to this show. We surely appreciate it. Again, subscribe for free in iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. You can learn more about us at Tybalink. Dot com and any uh, we'll put notes and, and links uh, in the show notes so if you're listening on a mobile device just scroll down you should see links to straighter line right there uh, in your show notes in the palm of your hand there's such power there on behalf of Burke Smith and straighter line on behalf of Howard Tybel I'm Pete Wright and we'll catch you next week on navigating change the podcast from Tybel Inc. Mm-hmm.